I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name is Tom Clark and this week our Deputy Editor, Steve Bloomfield, is going to be talking to Steve Reicher and Alex Haslam about the Stanford Prison Experiment and how we got the wrong idea about evil. First though, Steve and I are joined here in Westminster by our Arts and Books Editor, Samir Rahim, to talk about something a bit different. Steve, there's no escaping the need to start with politics the moment i don't think you made it to the march on the weekend but you've got some thoughts on it anyway we have to start with a protest yes because we had a million people on the streets um there or thereabouts how you count these things is obviously uh somewhat tricky but that is incredibly rare for this country it is either the largest or the second largest protest we have ever seen the only comparable one was 2003 with iraq uh and i think it's really interesting to look at what makes a successful protest? Because in some ways, already this march is a success because it has engaged so many people to come from all over the country um, to give up their Saturday to uh, to walk or indeed for, for many people, I gather, just stand for a long time because it was so crowded um, through the streets of London. Uh, and it's got people in, engaged with politics. Uh, but if you look at the Iraq march and if you look at also the other major demonstration we've had in the last uh, 15, 20 years, and that's the Countryside Alliance when around 400,000 people uh, came to London for that. The Countryside Alliance march and the Iraq march weren't actually a success. What they were campaigning against happened anyway. And it's quite possible that what the people who are campaigning against on Saturday will happen anyway. So there is this issue that we celebrate these big demonstrations and yet when we look through recent history, they're not necessarily as successful as people like to remember them as. And what about the, uh, I mean, more novel form of protest, this five million plus names on a petition could that change anything? I saw a remark just before I got in here from a Labour MP saying, oh, I was in a leave seat. I was ready to do Theresa's bidding if it came to it. But now I've seen that so many people voted, uh, uh, registered with this petition um, against Brexit in my constituency that I'm going to um, vote for the amendment on another referendum after all. It can make a difference in that sense, yes. I mean, I think it's it's very, very easy to, to click on a p- petition. It takes less than a minute to do. Um, 
but what it does show is that you know for those who are making the decisions right now MPs it shows that there are people in their constituency who are opposed to our current course so in that sense yes it's um it's a sign of, of certainly something i think it also shows that there is a a block of people in this country um who are deeply opposed to uh to what is happening right now and it's funny we samira and i were talking about this earlier and samira was pointing out that of course this petition isn't about having a referendum uh on whether to revoke article 50 it says just revoke it. I, I guess you'd have to say there's a difference between Article 50 being revoked and the government saying, for all time, we're cancelling this whole idea of Brexit. Isn't the argument, you stop it, you say you're rethinking, and then perhaps uh, you'll cancel the whole thing, but perhaps you'll... Yes, it says that if you want to revoke Article 50, um, click here. I wonder, though, there was you know, a million people on the streets on Saturday that was obviously quite emotional for lots of people. I had uh, two uh, sets of close friends, both of whom are sort of um, in, a, in relationships with people who are from the EU, and it was quite important for them to to, to be out there on the streets and to, to have their say. But if we were in the situation where, for example, this petition was granted and we had Article 50 being revoked, I think I could easily see a million people coming out for leave. I, I think Samir's point is interesting in that it's, you know, and I, and I saw this a lot on social media over the weekend, it's very easy to compare the march on Saturday with the march for leave, which has been sort of wending its way rather slowly and uh, with only a few dozen people from, from the north of England down to London. Um, and they're going to have a rally uh, at the end of this week uh, in here in London. Um and, and you know, you look at the numbers, and obviously, you know, one is a million and one is is dozens. It's it's incomparable. But you know, despite all the Brexit betrayal, so called, that Nigel Farage will, is talking about, Brexit is still happening. Um, if Brexit was somewhere or another stopped, then yes, I think you might see uh, a very large demonstration. But one thing I thought was quite interesting about the the weekend is that. The People's Vote, um, certainly for lots of people on the left, the People's Vote campaign has been seen as, you know, essentially people who thought uh, everything was fine before 23rd of June 2016. Uh, you know, you look at the people who run it and it's Labour Lords or Blairite Lords, it's Lib Dem advisors, it's Tory MPs, and they think, well, really, you know, how are these people actually, you know, do these people understand what's really going on in the country? And you've seen the split between parts of the left and the Remain campaign um, over uh, what's more important, a, a Labour government or uh, scrapping Article 50, stopping Brexit. And I think what was interesting about the weekend was it felt more inclusive and more of a broad coalition than I think the people's voters felt in the in the past. There was a, a left block uh, part of the of the demonstration, which included uh, people like Clive Lewis, included Caroline Lucas, and you had Billy Bragg, didn't you? Saying I've been on a lot of protests. Not quite sure about this second referendum, but I like the idea of being out on the streets with a million other people on a day when the newspapers are calling for the prime minister to go. Yes, and exactly. And he was also saying, look, you know, I'm you know not a fan of the the people that are running people's vote, the people most associated with it, but uh, but I also think you know this cause is just so. I get the sense that it's sort of starting to, and you, you know, Tom Kibassi, the the head of IPP 
NPR was making the point that, that um, the vast majority of uh, Labour MPs of colour were on this march. Many of them were were speakers. Um, that actually there is a, a grassroots uh, Labour support for the uh, the People's Vote campaign. Perhaps just one that's not necessarily reflected in the voices we normally hear from it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now, Samia... Uh, you've been dealing with something, um, I don't know if it's more dispiriting than the Brexit process or, or, or less. It's the latest TV show from Ricky Gervais. Well, it's less important, um, but it's still, yeah, just, just, just about. Um, but uh, Ricky Gervais um, has a new series on Netflix called Afterlife. We all know Ricky Gervais from The Office and, and Extras. I love The Office. I thought it was an absolutely wonderful programme. But he seems to have been descending... Um, and I think this is um, the nadir, certainly the work of his um, that I've seen. For those of you who haven't haven't seen it, it follows a character who's a bit like Ricky Gervais. Um, his wife has died, and he's in mourning. Um, and this means that he thinks life is pointless, and uses it as a sort of justification for being as unpleasant as possible to everyone in his surroundings. Um, it's set in a small town, a bit like the kind of thing he's done before. And over the course of six episodes, and um, I watched them all just to make sure that it didn't get any better and it got much worse. Um, <laughs> he uh, is gradually brought around to the conclusion that life is worth living after all and being really unpleasant to other people isn't uh, necessarily the best thing. So, you know, a fairly pat moral conclusion. But, you know, it wasn't funny. Um, and I think there's a particular reason for that there's two things there was always an element of sentimentality and mawkishness that's been present in his work i think in the office they saved it for the last five minutes where everything was reasonably wrapped up happily ever after here the mawkishness and sentimentality runs through the whole thing and the last episode is just a really grating display of um uh music in the background, welling emotion, people telling each other that they love each other. And it, it just really um, 
just was very off-putting. I think there's another thing as well, though. Gervais made The Office with his comedy partner, Stephen Merchant. So he had somebody who was writing with him. This programme is just written and directed by him. And I think Merchant probably um, was quite significant in that process because he he saw the character of Ricky Gervais could be um, moulded into a character called David Brent, who was really quite unpleasant in, in many ways. But he also surrounded him with characters who had their own individual lives, who had their own stories, who had their own way of sort of batting back against the Gervais character. So it was more of an ensemble piece. And uh, the central character wasn't someone who so totally dominated the action. If you compare it to the recent Office movie that um, Gervais did, all the other supporting characters are basically non-existent and unmemorable. And it's the same thing in this uh, series Afterlife. Uh, Diane Morgan, a very funny comedian who uh, is perhaps better known as Philomena Kunk, appears in this. She's woefully underused. She's so funny whenever she appears, but she has only you know, two or three lines an episode. And she always gets essentially crushed by the Gervais character. It's also perhaps related to his love of um, Curb Your Enthusiasm. So, so it's quite similar to the Larry David style comedy where you have one misanthropic character going around uh, basically insulting everyone. Um, and I always thought that Seinfeld, which was the original series uh, Larry David uh, made with Jerry Seinfeld, was a lot funnier because the Larry David character um, played by George Costanza, uh, called George Costanza, sorry, played by Jason Alexander, um, was again just one of a series of characters who were in an ensemble. Do you need them all to be funny or is this really another way of saying that like what in the 70s would have said oh you need a straight man who's quite developed? They can be funny in different ways but they need to be bounced back against by characters of equal weight and depth. You can't just have the one misanthropic character going around and having his world view being the sort of um, the central focus because I think that just loses our sense of any sympathy ultimately you might have with a misanthrope because it's just their story being told um, again and again. Is there another issue with this which is that Gervais's last decade or so his comedy theme has essentially been I'm going to be offensive and that in itself m me being offensive and you taking offense is the is the comedy payoff. Yeah, he had an interview um, in the New York Times last week, which is quite interesting, where the interviewer asked him, saying, well, you seem to take a lot of your humour um, from sort of Twitter spats you have with uh, members of the public. Um, and he says, and then he's asked, is that the most interesting place to look? And he replied, do you mean why am I fighting the easiest targets? Why am I picking extreme examples? Because, because I'm a comedian, not a politician. My job is to be funny. Like the idea that the funniest thing is to pick the easiest target and make the easiest and simplest joke about it. Well, I don't think that is actually the job of a comedian, is it? I mean, um, it's the job of a poor comedian that doesn't really work that hard. Yeah, and there's 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 stretches of dialogue in Afterlife that could almost that set up uh, the characters around him as sort of trolls saying really stupid things, and then uh, the Gervais character just sort of squashes them, and you're meant to sort of. Um, you know, you sort of forget to that point that the character's meant to be awful. You're sort of meant to be cheering him on because they're views that coincide with Gervais's own about animals or atheism or, or, or all the rest of it. So you kind of feel complicit in this bullying. Is that something you don't like in it? Yeah, and I felt the same about like, like that about Curb Your Enthusiasm. You felt like he's a sort of quite privileged man going around just um, 
being unpleasant to people and why is that actually funny is it the case that everyone else is terrible and that um um you're the only person who sees through them yeah but sometimes we all feel like that um but there's a sort of for all its sentimentality this series there's a lack of generosity about it which is perhaps reflective of uh, the way he's gone in his comedy in the last few years now let's have a think about fleabag which is also back and um it's got um a lot of attention at the moment uh it's very strange. It's quite dark. Do you think it's also lacking in generosity, Lou? I don't think so. I mean, when I first watched it, I watched the first three episodes and I thought it was funny, but I thought mm, maybe I'm not sure if this quite works. But only in the last week, actually, quite late, did I watch the rest of the first series. Um, and I think it was absolutely brilliant, actually. And in a way, you could say it's a similar sort of plot line in that the main character has a trauma um, and that is why she behaves in certain outrageous or difficult ways. But it's a lot better constructed because you only learn what that trauma is right to the end of the first series. Um, and so therefore, it gives a whole new, uh, more tragic palette to the, to the whole thing. She's naturally, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who plays the, the main character and, and writes it, is a naturally very funny person as well. And although she she presents herself as being <laughs> outrageous and taboo-breaking. There is a real um, heartbreaking sense that this is a character in crisis, which you don't really get with the Gervais. Well, you, you actually have her in therapy, don't you, at one point in the uh, in Fleabag, where she's describing herself as a girl with an empty heart or something. It does get quite, <laughs> quite sombre for comedy. And she's also a far more... Um creative writer and you know very a, a lot harder to put in a box you look at killing eve which she wrote and you can yeah you know, th there's there's a there's a thread running through it you can see you know it's written it's from the same pen as fleabag but they're very very different you know you can't look at any ricky gervais thing and think this is very very different from yeah you know, the setting might be slightly different but they're all the same thing him playing the same guy again and again Enough about darkness in our Westminster studio because now we're going to come on to the heart of darkness and the understanding of evil. Stephen Riker, Alex Haslam, thank you both very much for joining us today. Um, Stephen, perhaps if I can begin with you. Take us back to 1961 uh, it was a time where we had the Adolf Eichmann trial, but at the same moment, there was also something else happening that helped to shape the way we viewed evil. Well, let me take you back still further. Okay, fine. Um, because most post-war social thought um, is dominated by the shadow of the Holocaust. And the question that people ask is, how could it happen? How could so many people be slaughtered, not because of anything they'd done, but simply because of who they were? And the initial consensus, and a understandable consensus, is that the sorts of people who commit such monstrous acts must be monsters. There must be something about them which sets them apart from you and me. They must have some particular uh, defect in their makeup which makes them capable of such brutality. And that consensus endured for 15 or so years after the end of the Second World War. And in 1961, uh, Adolf Eichmann was captured in, uh, in Argentina. He was taken to Jerusalem. He was put on trial. 
And there was huge anticipation because people were going to see the chief bureaucrat of the Holocaust, the man who was responsible for killing uh, six million people, of deporting them to the death camps. And everybody expected to see a quite remarkable figure, the face of evil. And one of the people sitting in the courtroom was that young German-Jewish political philosopher, Hannah Arendt. And when Eichmann came in, people were dumbfounded because they didn't see anybody particularly noteworthy. They saw this fastidious, hunched, balding bureaucrat who carefully took notes on what was happening. He didn't seem to be distinctive. He didn't seem to be different from you or I. He seemed to be a typical bureaucrat. And that led uh, Arendt very famously to come up with a phrase that still resonates, the banality of evil. Not that the acts were banal, but that the person who did it was banal and he did it for banal motives. Now, by coincidence, at exactly the same time as Arendt was sitting in that courtroom and Eichmann was coming into that courtroom, in his laboratories at Yale University, Stanley Milgram was conducting some studies which have come to be probably the most famous studies in the history of psychology. They were set up as a learning experiment. You were brought in to the laboratory being told you were going to take part in some studies looking at the effects of punishment on learning. Seemingly randomly, but actually by design, you were allocated to the role of a teacher. And what you had to do was to teach somebody um, a series of word pairs and then test them. Each time they made an error, you had to give them an electric shock. The shocks weren't real. The person getting them was an accomplice, but you thought they were real. And the shocks would go up. They'd start at 15 volts to 30 to 45. How far would people go? 150 volts, 160. Would people go all the way to 450 volts? Would people, in effect, kill somebody for making an error on a learning experiment under the instructions of an authority? Now, when Milgram asked people in advance, including experts, including psychiatrists, they said, no, of course they won't. The psychiatrists thought one in a thousand people would do it, the real psychopaths. And so Milgram did the study, and in his most famous variant of the studies, what's often called the baseline or the revised baseline condition, 26 out of 40 people went the whole way. Two out of three ordinary people, it seemed, would kill someone when told to do so by an authority simply because they had made errors on a learning experiment. And that seemed to corroborate what Arendt was saying. It seemed to indicate ordinary people can kill when told to do, do so. And moreover, the explanation which Milgram gave, he drew from Arendt and he said, these people were like bureaucrats. They did things out of thoughtlessness. They were so focused on doing the right thing by the authority of being a good follower, they didn't notice that they were killing. Let me bring Alex in here. This thought uh, was then developed 10 years later wasn't yeah, it, in Stanford? So the Milgram story there very clearly uh, sets in train this analysis around and corroborates, as Steve's saying, the idea of the banality of evil and really cements that. in the mo and, and over the next 10 years, uh, uh, Milgram, interestingly, he sort of consolidates that account. He, early on, he has, a, and we'll come back to this a bit later, he has a, 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 a really rather rich understanding of what happened in his studies, but he really settles on this banality of evil idea. 71, 10 years later, uh, in... Uh, Stanford University in uh, California. Um, Philip Zimbardo, who, 
as it happens, had a long-time associate of Milgram, they'd actually been to high school together, sets up in the basement of the Stanford Psychology Department a, a prison. Uh, it's obviously not a real prison, but it's, it's, it's in the basement. He, he has, he's sort of taken all the stuff out, put in some mattresses, and he brings in uh, 15 uh, participants, um, there's various numbers, but anyway, a number of them between 15 and, and 25 at different times. And he assigns half of them to be prisoners and half of them to be guards. And the issue that he wants to look at is will the, as, as, he, as he presents it, is what will be the effect of this situation where one group has power over another in a context where we have a kind of, beha uh, he refers to them as behavioral scripts associated with these group memberships. So is it the case that, you know, that these two groups will treat each other respectfully and so on? Or is it the case that somehow the guards will more or less naturally just take on this role of, of powerful, tyrannical, abusive behavior vis-a-vis -vis the prisoners? Anyway, the study gets underway, a, a range of things happen, but the bottom line and the thing that the study is known for is the fact that it has to be terminated after just six days because the guards, according to Zimbardo, had indeed taken on these roles as abusive prisoners with such kind of ferocity that now there are serious uh, grave concerns for the well-being of the prisoners. So this then if you like, amplifies that conclusion of Milgram's because it suggests, yes, indeed, people do conform to these roles. Normal, decent people will turn into brutalizing, oppressive thugs just by virtue of being in a situation which has some kind of r implicit role requirements. And in fact, if anything, and, it, and other people made this point, it's more chilling than, uh, than uh, Milgram's work because Milgram's work, you tell people to be abusive and then they go and do it. But Zimbardo's saying, well, actually, you you, you probably don't even need to tell them to do it. They will just they will just, if you like, read the environment, bring to bear these their understandings that they have preformed, and then enact brutality with again little or no insight into what they're doing. Before we get on to the questions surrounding these two experiments, Steve, how influential were they on our thinking? Well, <laughs> Alex and I are social psychologists. And most of the time we spend uh, uh, thinking the world doesn't quite understand what sort of beast we are. It, it, it's a strange discipline, not, people know, uh, not many people know much about it. However, there are two exceptions. If you ask people inside psychology, not just social psychology, all of psychology, what are the two most famous studies ever done time and time again, people will say Milgram and Zimbardo. When you go elsewhere in academia, um, historians, legal scholars, political scientists will quote Zimbardo and we'll quote Milgram and what's more in the popular culture uh, when we give talks to school teachers when we give talks to uh, ordinary members of the public uh, many people won't remember the names they won't say oh yes Milgram and Zimbardo they'll say oh yes that study where they divided people into prisoners and guards so the important thing is that these uh, studies have become part of our popular culture. Whether they're right or wrong, they inform our self-understanding, they inform our culture, to some extent they inform our politics as well. You said whether they're right or wrong. Uh, Alex, let's delve into that question now. How soon after these experiments became accepted were questions raised about their accuracy? Well, it's interesting because I think for a, there were a range of doubts, I think, raised at the time in various forms. But, but the critical point is those things never really got any purchase. They never got any traction. And 
it really wasn't until I would say the uh, this this century really that, that his, historians, particularly people like David Cesarani and Lozovich and a range of other people, um, started not at the psychology end of things, but at the at the history end of things to reinterrogate Arendt, and in particular. Uh, I think Cesarani was and an was was rather scathing of uh, Arendt's analysis and conclusions. What I mean, there's a whole stack of things, very specifically around the Eichmann trial, which call into question the the manner in which she drew the conclusion and the nature of that conclusion. One is that she didn't attend all of his trials; she only attended the days in which his defence was presenting the pitch. The other was that, and and this is where Cesarani really sort of, as it were, kicked, put the boot in, was that he argues that of course Eichmann wanted to minimize his own complicity in the Holocaust and of course he was motivated to present himself as just a you know a passive bystander as someone who wasn't a, a real Nazi or had you know and, and and just this faceless bureaucrat but but he argues no this was a very calculated uh, strategy designed to deflect blame away from him and of course it was one that was assumed and lots of other people like Margaret Fullerton have argued that you know most Nazis after the war uh, followed that lead and said, no, 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 I wasn't really a Nazi. I was just doing it because it was a sort of, you know, it was what one had to do in order to stay out of trouble and and not attract the attention of the Gestapo, whatever it might be. And actually, she and others have said, no, that's not the case. These people were true believers. They were committed Nazis. And really, I think for us, one of the really critical things uh, in, in the Eichmann case and, and most of these other cases is it's absolutely clear that these people were not conforming in the sense that Milgram and Zimbardo implied. They brought real creativity and innovation and enthusiasm to their roles. So if you look, for example, in the case of Eichmann, at the so-called final solution, the point there was he was given a problem and he and he he worked very, very hard to come up with an imaginative, creative solution um, that dealt with the in-group's perceived problems. So so these were not passive, you know, uh, innocuous bystanders. No, these were enthusiasts who were driving the thing forward. They were true believers, and they were highly identified with a cause that they believed in and that they fundamentally thought to be right. And it's then that the the psychology that and 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 we came to similar understanding but by a somewhat different route from our own research and then through on the basis of that detailed um, engagement with uh, uh, with the, the specifics of the Milgram and Zimbardo cases but Steve can probably amplify on that now just to so yes so what is significant about the traditional story is if you like that confluence that weaving together of the historical and the psychological research and what is interesting is how in the same way they unravel together so over a period of time, the notion that Eichmann was just a this typical hunched bureaucrat falls apart. Um, uh, to me, one of the most emblematic quotes is when after the end of the war, he is interviewed by a Nazi journalist, asked if he has any remorse. This is now when he's not a, in the thrall of, uh, of any authority. And he says, he says, no, I have no remorse. If I regret anything, he says, it's that we didn't kill more. He said, if we had killed eight to 10 million Jewish people, I would have leapt into my grave laughing. He was a true believer. He believed in what he did. Now, when it comes to the Milgram and the Zimbardo work, again, right from the beginning, there are suspicions. There are issues that the explanations don't really explain the data, but there were limits in the uh, amount of information we had. 
And I think the, the great unraveling happens when people begin to look at first the Milgram archive, where there is detailed information about everything that happened, and then secondly, the Zimbardo archive. And when you look at those archives, let's start with Milgram. The first thing about Milgram is Milgram didn't do just one study where 65% of people obeyed. He, in fact, did about 30 studies. The exact number of what you call pilot studies, actual studies, but it's around 30. Okay. And if you look at all those studies together, then actually the majority, around 54% of people, disobey. So these aren't the obedience studies. If anything, they're the uh, disobedience studies, or rather they're the obedience and disobedience studies. So already you have to ask, well, when do people obey authority or not? The notion they're not aware of what the victim is saying is simply untrue. So if you look at the points where they drop out in the study, it's the point where, and, 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 and Milgram scriptured this, it's the point at which the victim begins to say, I'm hurting, stop me, or you don't have a right to do this. So the real question is, it's not that people are just hearing one voice, the voice of the, uh, of the experimenter. They're actually positioned between two different moral voices, one of which is saying to them, do this experiment. This is an important experiment. This is a progressive experiment. This is an experiment that will help us achieve human progress by understanding how people learn. That's the experimenter. And the other moral voice is the learner, the victim, who's saying, stop, you're hurting me. You don't have a right to do this. And the real question is, which voice do they listen to? And our argument, and in fact, Milgram himself suggests this, although he drops the suggestion later, it's a matter of identification, that what is happening is you are placed in this multivocal world, as we all are in most issues, different voices. Which one do you identify? Do you identify with the cause of science, a seemingly progressive cause, and are you prepared in the name of that cause to carry on and hurt people? Do you identify with the ordinary people? So that's why we argue that what's going on is a process of, on the one hand, what we call identity leadership. The experimenter as leader telling you, this is a great and important cause, uh, you've got to do work in its name, and engaged followership. Those who buy that, who identify with the science, they're the ones who are prepared to go on and to impose more and more and more shocks. And Alex, perhaps if you can talk a bit more about what's hap happened most recently, the, the, yeah. the newest revelations. So, so Steve, as I said, what we've come to, what we came to, this is, you know, in particular us, but lots of other people really uh, circling around this kind of conclusion. Milgram's not really right. His one-sided view doesn't really work. There seems to be more going on. And in particular, I think our own work really, it became very, very clear to us that, no, these things don't happen naturally. They never just happen naturally. There's always leadership involved there's always something saying this is the right thing to do do this do more of this now in milgram's case you know he hadn't taken any particular steps to sort of hide that it's just it hadn't been the focus of his analysis because actually when we as psychologists when we write up experiments we often sort of downplay our own role as experimenters in creating particular realities but in the case of zimbardo he had very uh, clearly airbrushed his own role in the study out of of the processes now when we did our own research steve and i in the early 2000s did a study with the bbc the bbc prison experiment we set up a prison in north london 
and uh, looked at, at these same sorts of dynamics. Lots of various things came out of our study, but one thing that was very, very clear to us is there is no way that people would just naturally interpret a particular situation in a particular way and, and sort of get on with enacting roles. No, you need people to uh, resolve various ambiguities and uncertainties to do some sense-making for you in these, in these in incredibly uh, sort of ambiguous situations. Now, when you look at the film of the original Zimbardo uh, study, in that, the only thing that was in there that we, that we latched onto was a briefing in which he says to the guards, um, what you're going to do in this study is you're going to um, impose your will on the prisoners. You're going to take away their individuality. You're going to make them feel uncertain and insecure. And we're going to uh, cr uh, impose our, our, our will on them in a way that makes it clear to them that we have all of the power in this situation and they have none. So he, where he is saying, theoretically, that actually they just enacted these roles without, you know, any input from anybody else and they were just reading the situation. It was very clear, even in this two-minute clip, that, that there was a lot of something else going on and they were being given a pretty big steer. We, we had no idea what else had gone in the study, but based on our reading of Milgram and, and other work that we had done, we started, and actually looking at the historical evidence relating to the topics that Milgram and Zimbardo are engaging with, again, you see lots of evidence of this identity leadership and engaged followership. Then, uh, last year, uh, Thibault Letexier, French researcher, goes into the Stanford archive and he spends a long time there going through lots and lots of material. And what you see is revelatory because actually, after Zimbardo has given his briefing, actually his warden goes and he spends a lot of time, has something like a five-hour session with the guards explaining to them how they're going to manage the prisoners. And he actually trains them in how to impose um, their will on them and how to uh, treat the prisoners in, in, in order to uh, secure their compliance and to keep them subjugated and effectively how to oppress them. And then throughout, there's a whole raft of other uh, interactions which speak very specifically to this very uh, uh, active form of identity leadership, saying this is what we're about and this is what you're going to do. And there's one very particular um, interaction, which I'd really urge anybody who's listening to this podcast to listen to, and you can click on the link and just go there straight away. It's a 17-minute interaction between one of between the warden and one of uh, Zimbardo's guards, who's rather sort of recalcitrant, which is interesting in itself because again, the idea Steve was saying about Milgram, one of the things you see is huge variability in people's responses. This is true in the Stanford Prison Experiment too. So some of the guards, yes, were brutal, but many of them didn't want anything to do with it. And this one guard is saying, no, I don't want to, I don't want to get involved. I think this is rubbish, you know, and I don't see why I should be, uh, you know, pushing the prisoners around. They're just decent, normal people. And anyway, the, what you see is the warden says to him, well, yes, I understand what you're saying, but it's incredibly important for this experiment that you act like a tough guard. It's really important that you put your any qualms you have to one side and go in there and assert yourself over the prisoners and you know and and put them in the right place and uh, I think he says put aside any sophisticated ideas of psychology that you might have and in the interests of this progressive science and, and a, an agenda about reforming prisons and exposing how brutal they are it's really important for you to go and push these prisoners around a bit and this is a 17 minute 
haranguing of the guard along these lines. And it's a perfect exposition of these ideas of identity leadership. And the critical point there is, if Steve and I had spent the last 10 years wanting to make up data which actually uh, supported our analysis, I don't think we would have been audacious enough to have created something that sort of dramatic and powerful. And it is the exact perfect antithesis to everything that Zimbardo had ever said. And indeed, again, I think it really gives the lie to that banality of evil idea. And then, Steve, just finally, to, to bring it back to, to the wider world, how does this help us, These sort of this new understanding, how does it help us begin to understand what's happening in the world right now, whether that is with ISIS, whether that is with the terrorist attack in, in Christchurch? The core of the argument is that what a lot of the traditional explanations do, by somehow naturalising um, brutality, by saying there's something bred in the bone which leads people to act in these ways, is that w we ignore the dimension of leadership and we ignore the political dimension. So we've actually written um, uh, quite a lot around Christchurch um, in order to try to understand it and try to see whether this analysis makes sense of it. Now, one response is just to say, here is a deranged individual who is behaving in a completely deranged way. But when you look at what the perpetrator was saying, he was saying, I'm not a leader, I'm a follower. He said, I'm a foot soldier. Uh, I'm a foot soldier in the cause. So that then leads you to ask the question, well, who has defined a cause in which he acts? Who, in a sense, has instigated uh, him to act, even if he was the one who pulled the trigger? And so we've looked at uh, his argument, which is uh, a fairly well-worn argument on the far right of Muslims as invaders replacing indigenous white European culture. And when you look at the range of ideas which have been legitimated um, across the world, you begin to see how important, for instance, uh, Islamophobic notions of the Muslim as other, the Muslim as not one of us, uh, the Muslim as an invader, from which it's quite easy then to take the next step, which is to say, well, I'm prepared to do what others aren't prepared to do and to take it on it, um, myself to protect my people by acting in these ways. So there is a toxic leadership a toxic leadership which defines Muslims as not us and which defines them as an enemy to us. But there's also, and I think this is one of the other lessons of, uh, of Christchurch, an alternative to that, an inclusive leadership. Because if the first step down that road to genocide is to define a certain group as not of us, the way to stop people going down that path is to say they are us. And that's precisely what Jacinda Ardern said. She starts off by saying, not this massacre was terrible. Everybody can say that. That's easy to say. She says, look at the victims. It wasn't done to them. It was done to us. They are us. And then she, in a sense, shows that in the way in which she, uh, in a sense, performs inclusion, the way in which she takes uh, on uh, a hijab, the way in which she embraces people and involves them. And then, and we will see whether how far this goes, but then policy initiatives which say they are us. So, as I say, leadership can be very powerful in excluding others in making others a problem to us such that harming them is defending the group. 
the response to that is to understand leadership and how to create an inclusive leadership. We'll leave it there. Steve Reich and Alex Haslam, thank you both very much indeed. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our guest Stephen Riker, also to uh, Steve Bloomfield and Samir Rahim here in the pod at the heart of Westminster. Um, Stephanie Bolan was this week's producer. And if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and review, which really does help. See you next week. and Goodbye. <laughs>